everyone. It's a really, it's really, really both a privilege and a pleasure for me to introduce a very good friend and a very good colleague of mine, one of ours, Pete, <coughs> living in Southampton, which today, I think Southampton Day is playing against Arsenal, is that right? Really? I wouldn't know. It's Southampton. They are going to watch. He, he would be, a, hopefully, the ticket will arrive in time for him. <laughs> anyway, so, so uh, Pete is a, uh, his back, your, your background, Pete, is primarily philosophy, but also working with theology and, and, and culture and related subjects to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pete has written, I think it's fair to say, many books. Uh, and among those here you can see, uh, let's mention two of them. This is for three years ago or something. Um, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, that is Richard Dawkins and the others. So when you sort of have the Richard Dawkins of today in one hand and look, look at what can we learn from C.S. Lewis in, in how to relate to them and to respond to them and to critique them and to be courageous. Uh, and the other thing is actually, I did mention yesterday that uh, uh, you, Pete, was one of two editors of a book commemorating the 50-year anniversary of C.S. Lewis' death. Let me say this in Norwegian. I told you it's not that a markering of what C.S. 1963 gick han döde C.S. 50 år för. Och i Westminster Abbey så blev det en, en, en markert, sagt det för. I den nationalskaldens hjörne så fick också C.S. Lewis sin plats. Och det är väldigt flott att se lite om hur mycket vår gäst idag vet om C.S. Lewis att han har bespurt om att vara en av redaktörerna på den med ledande C.S. Lewis-kännare i Storbritannien. Så vi är privilegierade som har hit med oss här idag. Så jag vill göra det så att jag sitter här och vill då eh, kunna gripa in mot det på sig i båsvänner, om det är någon som inte uppför. Nej, Nej men vi vill kunna eh, översätta när det dukar upp ting som det har behov för. Så visst det är ting som det följer, nå fick jag inte med med sammanhängen. Så är Pete väldigt öppen för att hoppa med honom och spör. Eller bara kan du jämta lätt land? Eller kan du översätta på norsk? Ja. So we have agreed on the right procedures. And the floor is yours. And thank you very much. Delightful to be with you. I wish I could have come on the whole tour uh, with you uh, indeed. Um, a few years ago when my publisher approached me uh, about writing uh, the book that ended up as C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, I could see why they would be interested in a book that covered two popular topics at the same time, because that's probably going to sell more. Um, but the sales uh, was not the reason that I write books, uh, certainly not the reason that I write Christian books. Uh, and so I took a little bit of convincing, and I went back to study uh, Lewis's life when he had been an atheist. Um, when he had been an atheist professor at Oxford University, and tracing back uh, the intellectual roots of the, the new atheist movement as well, uh, mostly to Oxford University. Today's new atheists, 
people like Richard Dawkins, A.C. Grayling, Daniel Dennett, and so on, most of them did their doctoral work at Oxford University under professors who had been colleagues of C.S. Lewis at Oxford University. They're only one intellectual generation removed. So really, um, the issues that were dominant within Oxford thinking in the early to mid-20th century that Lewis grappled with to go from his atheism to his Christianity are the same issues that are still dominating the thinking of today's new atheists who are then spreading that out into popular culture now. And so I saw that there was uh, a link there, and indeed that actually Lewis, when he was an atheist, held many views that were very similar to the views of today's so-called new atheists. So this is uh, from a letter to a friend of his called Arthur Greaves from 1916, written by an atheistic C.S. Lewis. He says to Arthur, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religion is merely man's own invention. Christ as much as Loki. You know, it's just the Christ. (laughs) the, The mythological Christ theory. Uh, which was then dominant in in 19th century German liberal theology and was very soon uh, fell apart within academic theology, but which is still being pushed today by people like Richard Dawkins, etc. Because that's the sort of atmosphere of thought that they just sort of picked up whilst they were doing their work uh, in non-theologically related subjects uh, at Oxford. It was uh, an article in Wired magazine that came up with this term, the new atheism, uh, for folks like uh, Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins here who we'll focus on. And just one quote from this article by Gary Wolfe, he said that the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, it's evil. So that... The new atheists don't only think it's an, it's an intellectually mistaken position to believe in God. They think it's a morally bad position to believe in God. And at the root of that is their misunderstanding of what it is to have faith, uh, as we'll see. So I, I'd like to pick up uh, on a conversation, as it were, between C.S. Lewis and Richard Dawkins, just to give us some, some focus and to narrow things down into a manageable way and see if we have time to pick up on these four themes of where I, th- I, I think Lewis's thought would pinpoint some key problems with the thinking of today's new atheism and to show how relevant Lewis is continuing to be to the conversation about God today. First of all, uh, Lewis would say that the uh, Dawkins and the new atheism as a, as a whole in general has a self-contradictory approach to faith and to knowledge, a self-contradictory approach to ethics, uh, to uh, the notions of freedom and responsibility, and also a self-contradictory approach to Jesus. Now, philosophically speaking, it doesn't get any worse for your position than it being self-contradictory. Trying to believe something that's self-contradictory 
is like believing that you uh, might stumble across a square circle in the park. Anyway. Uh, you know, the word self-contradictory in Norwegian is sell mot sigende. Sell mot sigende tillnärmning till tro och kunskap. Sell mot sigende tillnärmning till etik. Sell mot sigende tillnärmning till frihet och ansvar. Sell mot sigende tillnärmning till Jesus. Så poängen idag är att C.S. Lewis vill här se att de nya artisterna är präget av det. So I might be wrong if I think I might see a unicorn in Hyde Park. <laughs> but it's, it's possible that such a thing could exist. Um, but I'm even more wrong if I think I might stub my toe on a square circle. Um, such a thing could not exist. Uh, and that is the worst possible position to try and believe in, philosophically speaking. So let's start with uh, faith and knowledge. The new atheists, Richard Dawkins, have a, a scientistic, not scientific, but scientistic theory of knowledge. What this means is that they would say that science is the only way in which you can know things. It's the only reliable access to reality that we have comes through scientific methods alone and no others. So uh, Dawkins says all beliefs fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, you have what he calls proper evidence-based belief. And by evidence, he means empirical, physical, I can see it, I can measure it, I can touch it, I can smell it, kind of evidence. On the other hand, he says, there's blind faith. He says, faith is, I'm defining it here, faith is, believing in something where there literally isn't a scrap, isn't a tiny bit of evidence at all. If there were even a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. So he talks as if faith and blind faith are the same thing. Lewis didn't take that position at all, of course. He famously said that um, he viewed faith as the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. So for Lewis, there's no opposition between faith and and reason, rather it's uh, faith following your reason that then is in opposition to, say, temptation or boredom or I can't be bothered to go to church this morning or tiredness or whatever. He said this, now that I am a Christian I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. When I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. So unless you, you teach your, your moods, your emotions that just come and go, where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Just a creature dithering to and fro 
with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion and <laughs> how you happen to be feeling at the time. See. May I peek? Yesterday at Blackwell's, I showed a card to two gentlemen here, really pinpointing what you're saying there, but in a very popular mm. way. It said, was a quote by someone called Craig, don't worry about thinking, just feel, and that if it feels like home, follow the path. So, I don't think about thinking, Føl. Og hvis det føles rett, hvis det føles som heimslikt, da går du bare den stien. Og det er rettig for deg. You probably so, end up moving quite a lot. Exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting how this time, and it's a popular card mm. up front, and they're dealing in black words, echoing what you're mm. going so, is made back to Dawkins. Yeah, mm. but don't you think that many Christians today things like, think like that? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, it is a good point to pick up in, in our understanding of faith and so on. Yeah. Lewis would also note that, that Dawkins, this scientific theory of knowledge, uh, is far too narrow an understanding of what knowledge is. It's not... Um, think of it this way. Dawkins, with that either-or categorization, is kind of saying... In order for any of my beliefs to be rational, I must have some evidence in favour of that belief. And only then can I claim to rationally know something, believe something. But that rule, in order to rationally believe anything, I must have evidence in its favour, that rule is self-contradictory. If you take it and you try and apply it to itself, hold it to its own standard, think... Well, what would happen? Um, in order to believe A, I must have some evidence that counts in its favour. Call that B. But why should I believe that B really exists and really supports the truth of A? In order for my belief in B and its supporting A to be rational, I must have some evidence that that is true. Call that C. <laughs> Repeat ad infinitum. So you can never fulfil that demand for evidence. You can't justify that rule with evidence, and you could never actually follow that demand because it's an infinite demand, as it were. I think we would do with some Norwegian. Yeah. yeah. På norsk, altså den princip om at for at hæve at noget er fornuftigt, så må vi altid have noget som underbygger det med evidens, med bevisgrunde og så videre. Men selve den regel kan ikke stå i egen standard, for det, det er nyttigt og, og det findes ikke grunde nok, evidens nok til at underbygge selv den regel. You can't argue back forever. So then it must be possible to rationally, rationally believe at least some things that you don't have to argue for 
in order to rationally believe them. And it's fairly easy to think of examples of things that contradict this rule, like um, moral beliefs. You know, it is wrong to torture small children just for fun. Okay. Um, do you need evidence? For that, how, how do you know, you know, evidence isn't the sort of thing that tells you about right and wrong, scientific evidence. Or mathematical knowledge. You need a lot of mathematical knowledge to do a lot of science. But your mathematical knowledge is not based upon experience and experiment and logical knowledge, likewise. Things like knowing the law of non-contradiction is true. You couldn't do science unless you knew that. But it's not the sort of thing that you can give evidence for. <laughs> so as Lewis said, uh, you cannot produce this kind of rational intuition of these kind of basic beliefs. You can't produce rational intuition by argument. Because argument depends upon those rational intuitions. Proof rests upon the unprovable, which just has to be seen. So it's not being anti-rational or anti-science, but he's saying if you try and, try and restrict rationality within the scientific evidence box, actually that is the anti-rational position because it's self-contradictory. You can't do it. To, to do science, to argue for things, you have to have this broader understanding of what it is to know something that includes rational intuition. As an atheist, Lewis rejected this kind of narrow understanding of knowledge. He says the distinction made between scientific and non-scientific thought won't easily bear the weight that we're attempting to put on it. He saw that back in the day. And because he rejected this scientism, this narrow theory of knowledge, that allowed him, as an atheist, to take seriously philosophical arguments for the existence of God. And today's new atheists do not take arguments for God seriously... They, they hardly engage with them at all. When they do, it's at a very superficial level. That goes back to their very narrow understanding of how you know things. Pete, just yeah. a, a brief moment here. Uh, scientism. For uh, scientism. Det är alltså bara en omskrivning av den engelska. Och det betyder att den har en menar att det finns inte någon kunskap utanför det naturvetenskapliga området. Det är rent empiriska områden. Som kan, ja, som kan bevisas. Alltså kunskap som verkligen står fast. Problemet då, som C.S. Lewis pekar på som Peter sagt här är att eh, sånt fungerar inte det. Vi tränger mycket bredare syn på kunskap. Mycket bredare syn på kunskap. Och sälj detta principer. Så sälj detta principer är inte nog i sig själv. För det att hävda det de hävdar är självmotsägande. För du kan inte placera, du kan inte få fram naturvetenskapliga beviser för detta princip de hävdar. 
Ja, som artist allerede var kritisk til dette. Det gjorde at han var villig til å ta på seg så å si, brillene til, til kristne og til, til folk som trodde på en gud, sant? og til å utforske det. Han var ikke lukket i sin posisjon. Ethics. Lewis points out a consequence of this narrow understanding of, of knowledge for ethical thinking. He says, if you have that scientific view, um, scientific thought, it, it's widely believed, puts us in touch with reality. But moral or metaphysical thought does not, therefore. If only science is the way to know, then of course morality and philosophy, metaphysics, is not a way to know. So on that view, when we say the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say uh, men ought to have a living wage, we're only describing our own subjective feelings. We're not describing something true about reality. When I say torturing small children for fun is wrong, I'm not saying something true about reality. I'm just, at best, describing my subjective feelings, my mood about it. So on this scientific view, the world of facts, without one trace of value, and the world of, of feelings, values, without one trace of truth or falsehood, they confront one another... And they, they can never talk to one another. So you have this facts-values divide, which is still a big divide in modern culture. It's a big divide in New Atheist thinking. And it comes from this scientific view of knowledge. As a Christian, I think we should say there are facts about values. Indeed, as an atheist, C.S. Lewis thought you should be able to say there are facts about values. Excuse me, is he, when did C.S. Lewis say this? Is it in the abolition of man? Or? Um, particularly that quote, uh, yes, yeah, from the abolition of man, that second quote, the first one was from his little essay, De Futilitate. Oh. So it's after he became a Christian? Yes, he's writing this after, but, but um, describing views that he actually had before. before yeah. That's really uh, and indeed, I'm sure he would point out that despite his constant sort of moralising about things, especially about the evils of religion, Richard Dawkins, his scientism, leads him to reject the objective reality of any moral values. So Dawkins says that the universe we observe has just the properties we'd expect if there is, at bottom, no design, I mean, there's no God behind anything, no purpose, there's no one to propose it, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's just nature, the machine of nature, does its thing. So there are facts about what nature is, but there are no facts about values. Just pitiless indifference. He says there's, uh, there's an, an, another distinction between ideas that are true or false about the real world, factual matters, and ideas about what we ought to do, moral ideas, 
for which the words true and false have no meaning. That is like 1930s Oxford philosophy. <laughs> um, sorry, Oxford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've moved on since then, fortunately. But, uh. So in his book, for example, when Dawkins says things like, Hitler and Stalin were by any standards spectacularly evil men, what does Dawkins mean by saying they're evil? You, see, I, you, see, you might think he's saying they're evil, but he's not saying that that's a f- true fact about reality, that they're evil. He's just saying, I don't like them, really. And so when he says faith, by which he means blind faith, is an evil because it requires no justification and brooks no argument, what is he really saying? And is he criticising faith or not? If you take him literally in the round, well, he's not, because he says there is no good and evil in the universe, and yet he wants to morally criticise religion, particularly for having blind faith, for example, not living up to your intellectual responsibilities is a bad thing. So, really, he's saying, look, guys, um, we have a objective, subjective, moral obligation to oppose religion, because religion is an objectively, subjectively bad thing, (laughs) in that it encourages people to ignore their objective, subjective, intellectual moral obligations, you see. And if you just read the one quote, you think, well, he's, he's really having a go. He really means it. And you, but then you understand that, and he doesn't think there is any such thing as good and evil. So, ah, oh, no, he means subjective everywhere through here. So, oh, well, that's an interesting psychological report about himself. <laughs> Not a criticism as me of, of Christians or religious people or anything, is it? Because he also says there are no objective moral values. For Lewis, as an atheist, undergoing the horrors of the First World War, he thought evil was an objective fact. He said evil was a real thing, a thing that's really there, not made up by ourselves. He thought that evil was something that any god worthy of the name ought not to permit. As he explains in The Problem of Pain, he thought this justified his atheism. If anyone said, why don't you believe in God, I would have said something like, um, if you ask me to believe this universe is the work of a a good God, the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no, no God behind the universe, or that spirit, that God, is indifferent to good or evil. Or maybe they're an evil God. But believing in a good God doesn't make any sense because there is evil in the world that a good God oughtn't, wouldn't, if he were good, allow. But look, look at the evil. So he really meant it when he said look at the evil. Whereas Richard Dawkins doesn't really mean it if you trust what he says elsewhere. (laughs) But then Lewis kept thinking philosophically about this. On, uh, his essay on living in an atomic age, he, he, he muses, if nature is the only thing in existence, there's no supernatural, it's just the natural world, 
And of course, there can be no other source for our moral standards, our moral intuitions, come from, well, nature. It's the only place they can come from. So they must, like everything else, be the unintended, meaningless outcome of blind forces. Because that's what nature is. That's what Richard Dawkins thinks nature is. So Lewis recognised, as an atheist, I think there are things that are really evil, according to my moral intuitions. But if I believe naturalism is true, those moral intuitions, well, what are they? They're just meaningless. It's random. Just, they're not a reliable guide to the way reality is. So how do I put those together? Well, I, I can't. Really, you're saying if, if nature is all there is, if naturalism is true, then that would mean nothing is objectively evil. I just, it just happens to give me these feelings. But something is objectively evil. Torturing small children for fun is wrong. It's not just something that I feel is wrong. Therefore, naturalism is false. There's got to be more to the world than the world, as it were. Which then, that's kind of step one of, of a moral argument. At the moment, that's not a, an argument for God, but it is an argument against naturalism, one of the main anti-God worldviews. And you soon extend it by thinking, well, if I do trust these moral intuitions that have to come from somewhere beyond the material natural world, where should I think they come from in order for them to be reliable? To be things that really obligate me, that really command my behaviour. That's starting to sound an awful lot like they come from some sort of person with, with, with genuine moral authority. <laughs> That's starting to sound quite a lot like God. <laughs> so the defiance of, a, of an atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic universe is really unconsciously admitting that there's something that's infinitely valuable and authoritative. And that something is not the material world. I'm not obligated by my evolutionary history of my species. I'm not obligated by atoms or molecules or the force of gravity. You know, that causes me to fall over when I trip. I'm not morally obligated to fall over. <laughs> I think we would do with that particular in a region, please. That would be great. Well, the quote is, thank you for that. But the, uh, the essence of it. Mm. Um, problemet for an artist is that this and for this and how this morals, we are all these morals intuitions and so on, they feel us, they burde do it, or burde do it. Men de kommer ikke fra naturen. De må komme fra noe mer enn det. Og da kommer den i denne, dette dilemma som hvis en benekter Gud. Hvor er det kommer fra? Og en må åpne opp, sier Sigurd Lohus, for noe mer enn bare naturen. 
för det vi går back one step. För det är naturalism är sant, är sant, så finns det inte något som är objektivt galt. Det är bara bara kemiska processer, sant? Det är bara en del av naturen. Men vi följer något galt, men det är inte objektivt galt. För det andra, något i oss säger hela vägen att det är många ting som är objektivt galt. Exempel, klassiskt exempel, är att det är galt att torturera små barn. Det vill de alla, alla flesta i den världen som är, som är friske mentalt vill se det. Varför gör vi det? Ja, världen i sig själv kan inte förklara det. Det måste vara något mer. Next. Ja. Uh, yeah. Great. So, Lewis, as an atheist, because he took evil seriously as something that was real, and philosophy serious, he was able to follow that thread, first to doubting materialism, naturalism, and then to seeing that it, it was a clue to the existence of some kind of transcendent moral authority starting to sound like God. I think... Lewis would also point out that Dawkins have this self-contradictory approach to freedom and responsibility, which are obviously very related to, to, more, uh, to ethics, as we were saying. Now, if I fall over, the law of gravity causes me to fall over. I'm not morally obligated to fall over when I trip. But I am morally obligated not to torture small bounds for fun. Um, yeah, I can, I can do that if I choose to. I can't choose not to fall over if I trip. Moral laws and physical laws are not the same kind of thing. How would you explain moral laws just in terms of nothing but physical laws existing and physical things? It just They're different kinds of thing, aren't they? So... Lewis believed in, in what philosophers call libertarian free will. He, he said God created creatures that can go either wrong or right. Uh, a world of like puppets, automata, robots, of creatures that worked like machines would hardly be worth creating, he thought. And he said that the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them, but the moral law tells you what human beings ought to do and not to do seeing that different kind of things so they have to have different explanations why is the you know, why naturalists I think have a very strong argument against people having free will if naturalism is true it doesn't seem to me or Lewis that you could believe in free will that argument would very simply go something like this. That purely physical things, purely physical systems of things, they behave according to the laws of physics. And so they lack free will. The stone isn't thinking, will I obey gravity today or not? It doesn't get a choice. It just behaves according to the laws of physics. But secondly, if, if human beings are just purely physical systems, if that's also true, then it would seem to follow that human beings lack free will. 
Being material means you don't have free will. I am material, therefore I don't have free will. It's a very strong argument. Thanks. Of course, the, this is the crucial question to ask. Is that true? Are human beings nothing but material objects? I don't think that is true. And he, when you when you talk about common people, like in Norway, mm. they wouldn't say that they are naturalists. They would say that they are humanists, mm. secular <coughs> humanists. Yeah. And they say that we think that uh, that people are they 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 are not just just uh, nature. They are also thinking people, and they have. Uh, Humanism tends to be a label for the the more sort of political, social aspect of thought of a naturalistic worldview. But secular humanists are naturalists. So if you meet someone who thinks they're a secular humanist, but they believe that they have, there's more to them than the material, they actually have they have a supernatural worldview. They believe that there's something supernatural that's true about people. So they are are misdefining themselves. But how can you argue against it? At what point can you find? I've been arguing uh, when it comes to to, um, what is a a, uh, human being? Mm. What is a a child? What is uh, an embryo? Mm. And then you can come close to, okay, if I am not an activist, mm. I can't go against saying that this is a person. I can't let I can't yeah. it be kicked. So your, your understanding of what a person is yeah. is a key issue in lots of moral mm. debates. Yeah. And your understanding of what a person is should at least try to be consistent with your, un- your general understanding of the nature of reality. Mm. So I would say, if you're going to say with Richard Dawkins, you know, the world is just the world as d- described by science, that's not a world in which you can, you can then con- consistently say, and I believe people have souls that will go off into the afterlife when they die, and that people have free will, and so on. So one of the reasons that I don't think that this is true um, is because, for example, I think people do have free will. If they couldn't have free will were naturalism to be true, then thinking that people do have free will is a reason for thinking that naturalism is not true. 
<laughs> you kind of reverse uh, the, the argument. Uh, Dawkins carries through this line of thought from, I won't read the whole thing, but he goes from a description of people as um, brains just work like computers. They're like natural computers governed by the laws of physics. And that's all there is to you. You don't have a soul or a spirit. You're just a, a, a meat computer, basically. And he follows that through and he says, well, isn't the murderer a machine with a defective something or other? It's a machine that's not working like we want it to. Uh, we, we talk about um, responsibility and blame when we're talking about murder, for example. But having a, a mechanistic, a material understanding of what a person is, you're just your nervous system behaving according to the laws of physics. Doesn't that make a nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? And actually he goes on to say, yes, it does. It doesn't make sense to believe in responsibility if you're a materialist, because it doesn't make sense to believe in free will. And if you don't have a choice about it, you're not responsible for it. You see, he says, why do we vent such hatred on child murderers when we should regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? So he, he very much carries through that train of thought. But here's the question to put back to, to Dawkins, as it were. Okay, Dawkins, on your view, if everything about a person is, as you say, governed by the laws of physics then, I don't know, blaming them for intellectual failings, like having blind faith rather than thinking responsibly. <laughs> well, that would make about as much sense as blaming a domino for falling over, or, as he thinks, it makes no sense to blame the murderer for killing someone. So how could anybody, for example, Christians, be responsible for not living up to intellectual obligations if they aren't free to be responsible for anything? <laughs> well, the obvious answer to that question is, well, they can't. So how come Richard Dawkins is still blaming us all, <laughs> mistakenly, by the way, for having blind faith? Which we don't have, but that's a other issue. Um, it just, again, it makes... He's prone to like, take, give with one hand and take with the other. Do you have that phrase in Norwegian? Indeed... How could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a worldview, like a, a, an atheist worldview, materialist worldview, that denies any reality to intellectual obligations? When Dawkins, as an atheist, says, change your mind, Christians, come and be a naturalist, materialist, like I am. And he'd say, you ought to do that because you should be convinced by this argument, etc., etc. Hang on a minute. You're also telling me that I, there are no oughts. That I don't have any freedom to decide what I believe by choosing to pay attention to the arguments carefully and then making up my mind in light of my understanding of the evidence and so on. You're telling me that I don't have any Freedom to be intellectually responsible. <laughs> so how could I come to agree with a worldview that says, <laughs> by the way, you don't have to come to agree with me? <laughs> 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 
Why would I do that? (laughs) A train of reasoning, said Lewis, as a means of finding the truth, that's useless unless, this is true, unless every step in your train of reasoning is connected with the previous steps in your argument, in your train of reasoning. If I may, Pete, before you, because now you go into the, the yes. question of because what our friend here, Eva, mm. points out is so typical for the most of the conversations we have in Norway. People would not line up with the Dawkins, mm. but they would not at all have anything to do with God or anything spiritual at all. So... Mm. I find the only way of getting a foot into the door so that it can slightly get more open is to ask the questions back. Hvorfor kan du si at det er rett og det er galt? Hvorfor kan du si at menneske betyr mer enn et dyr? Og så videre. Having said that, we see in the political spheres, mm. lawmaking, um, all the discussion about euthanasia, uh, also active death shield or abort, so er det jo naturalisme som rår. Mm. Og de politiske styrker er det blir, er det mest yeah. det blir tydeligere og tydeligere at det er det naturalistiske reinspikker livssynet som styrer. Yeah. Og alle de av våre gode venner som sier, nei, men jeg er humanist, menneske, fritt, menneske, godt, menneske, fornuftig. Men hva bygger du det på? Menneskesynet er naturalistisk når det kommer til stykket. Så stille spørsmål, stille spørsmål, stille spørsmål. Og det er jo så i tråd med, excuse me for getting started, C.S. Lewis. Oh, I love C.S. Lewis. <laughs> you know, there is this basic tension in secular humanism between the, what they consider their own view of humanity mm. and the view of reality. Yeah. The view of rea- reality continues to be naturalistic the way through, but they claim that the view of humanity is mm. different. But that's impossible. But yeah. then there is a huge tension between yeah. within secular humanism like humanity is called, between their view of reality and their view of what they all claim as their view of humanity. Og det er poenget. Hva de selv sier er deres menneske syn, og hva som virkelig er deres menneske syn. Det er to forskjellige ting. But the humanism, they have the view of religion that this is something moving, this is something changing into a into one thing. Mm. So the, the key to this is man Christianity and showing people that Christianity is not religion. No, it's not. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, so um, well, as uh, Marlon points out, we're moving into this area of the argument from reason. And Lewis saying, for your reasoning to be a reliable thing that guides you into truth, each step of reason you do has to be connected to the others in the right kind of way. And this is the most philosophical bit of the talk, so I'll try and be brief. But he makes a distinction. Philosophers love distinctions. He keeps everything neat and tidy, you see. He says, here's two different ways in which thoughts could be connected to each other. Um, one is what he calls um, the ground-consequent because, like the the foundation and the result, the ground and the consequent, logically speaking, 
it says, uh, ask the question, why do you think this? The, a good answer must begin with the ground consequent because. And we'll illustrate that in a moment. On the other hand, he says, in a naturalistic worldview, every event in nature is connected to previous events in the cause and effect relationship. Oh, so fitly. Oh, so fitly. Yeah? Um, but that's a bit of a problem because, in the ground consequence sense, to be caused is not the same thing as being proved. Wishful thinking, prejudice, delusions, they're all caused, but they're not grounded logically. They're not reasonable. Being caused... It's not the same as being the reasonable conclusion to hold. Yeah? So he says, um, illustration. The relation of physical cause and effect, as in grandfather, must be ill today because, cause and effect, he ate lobster yesterday. So he's saying, ah, I know why grandfather is ill. It's because he ate the lobster. The lobster must have been off. It's affected his stomach. And that's why he's ill, you see. But then we have this logical ground consequent because, as in the argument, grandfather must be ill because, ground consequent, he hasn't got up yet, and we know that he's always an early riser when he is well. You see the difference? Um, grandfather not getting out of bed doesn't cause me to think that he's ill. <laughs> but using that argument, I have properly concluded that he must be ill. Even the famous atheist philosopher from America called Thomas Nagel observes, he says, if we can reason, and of course we, we can, <laughs> um, try, uh, try arguing that you can't argue, <laughs> it's because our thoughts can obey this order of logical relations among statements, among propositions. But if nature is all there is, if a person is just a natural object behaving according to the laws of physics of cause and effect, how on earth do we manage to reason about things? He's saying a naturalistic worldview, if you're consistent with it, it would reduce your understanding of a person to something that fits with that naturalistic worldview consistently. And that would reduce reasoning to the outcome of a closed system of physical cause and effect, because that's all there is. But doing that can't accommodate acts of reasoning. So naturalism is self-contradictory. This is an argument that, uh, in a slightly different form, uh, Paul Copan, a Christian philosopher, put to Richard Dawkins on a book tour in the States Dawkins was on. And uh, he points out to Dawkins that in Dawkins' book, River Out of Eden, he says that we are dancing to our DNA. Now, our DNA is ultimately what causes everything. Well, how do you, how do you distinguish between the arguments of the atheist? The atheist might think they're more rational than the Christian. See, How do you distinguish between the arguments of the atheist and the Christian's arguments, when it's the same non-rational physical genetic forces that are working in both brains. See? 
says, even if the atheist is correct, it seems to me that would be completely by accident rather than by any virtue of rationality that the atheist has that the Christian doesn't. So if, if the same forces were at work in both the atheist and the theist, why would we consider one or the other to be more rational? They're just, they're just both chains of physical causes and effect. <laughs> yeah? This is Dawkins' reply verbatim. Uh, um, I'm not quite sure I've got this. He will go on to prove that this is so. I mean, the same forces are shaping both the atheist and theist and indeed everybody. Yes. Uh, yet we come to different conclusions. Yes. Is your problem... How is it that we come to different conclusions if our brains are shaped by the same forces? No. <laughs> Dawkins hasn't got this at all. Um, what that shows, by the way, is that Dawkins has never pondered the rational coherences of his own theory of knowledge, which is a major topic in the philosophy of religion at the moment, which clearly he knows nothing about. Copan rephrases, my question is, why should the atheist believe he's more rational than the theist if the same forces are at work in both of them? That is, forces beyond both of their control. Dawkins, well, you could ask the same question about any difference of opinion. Yes, you could. So what's the answer? No, that's irrelevant. What's the answer? Um, he, then he changes the subject. <laughs> he says, well, if you were to ask me how... Uh, why I am confident that my scientific rationalism um, is, uh, is. I think he was probably going to say rational, or, <laughs> but he says is the right answer, it's true. I mean, the answer is that it works. <laughs> um, so he's ignorant about a major philosophical criticism of his worldview. He, he confuses that naturalistic worldview with science, scientific rationalism, and he begs the very question um, that Copan uh, raises. He just doesn't uh, answer it. He just assumes that he can be reasonable. So um, various books that you can pick up on that argument, including the, some that I've got down here. Um, Jesus, just to finish with, the, the, the rule, if miraculous unhistorical, is one that liberal critics bring to the study of the biblical text, not one that they learn from it. What you assume is possible will affect how you read the Gospels. So if you assume that miracles can't happen, then it's not surprising that you end up with a Jesus who does no miracles. That's not because you're looking at the evidence and following the evidence where it points. That's because you've already made up your mind before you look. It's doing the opposite, of course. It's not, it's not approaching the text already assuming that Jesus did miracles. It is to approach the text assuming that it's possible. Whether or not I think he did depends on the evidence. So uh, Dawkins will say things like, the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is zero, but he never interacts with the evidence. He criticises religious people for having blind faith in the absence of evidence. It seems like he's saying the problem is a lack of evidence for, say, the resurrection. But on the other hand, he says 
The 19th century is the last time it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles without embarrassment. In other words, um, I won't believe evidence for miracles. Show me the evidence. If you do, I'm not going to believe it. Huh? <laughs> um, did Jesus come alive again? There's an answer for every such question. And it's a strictly scientific answer. So, show me the evidence. But on the other hand, suppose something happens that we don't understand and we can't see how it could be fraud or trickery or lies. Would it ever be right to conclude that it must be supernatural? No. So, show me the evidence. Don't confuse me with the evidence I've already made my mind up. On a philosophical basis, by the way, <laughs> this from someone who says the only way to know things is through science. <laughs> but the way I know that Jesus didn't rise from the dead is through basically David Hume's outdated philosophical arguments against miracles. <laughs> um, the trilemma, very briefly, a journalist put to uh, Dawkins about, well, you know, Intelligent people like C.S. Lewis have believed. Dawkins goes off on one about the trilemma. Um, after a little bit of uh, C.S. Lewis baiting about him just being a professor of English and stuff, not, not strictly true, he uh, says, well, this argument, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad or really, really was the son of God, he says. It didn't seem to occur to Lewis that, that Jesus could simply be mistaken. <laughs> Yeah, that's the same reaction I've had to every audience that I've put that quote to. Everyone always laughs at that. Because obviously Dawkins isn't laughing at that, but it's interesting that everyone else does. Just that sincerely and honestly mistaken. What a pathetic argument, he says. And of course there's this very famous quote, which in Lewis Hans' hands isn't exactly put as an argument for the deity of Christ, but rather an argument against the popular view that Jesus wasn't divine, but of course he was a good moral teacher. He's trying to put people into a dilemma that tries to show them that's something that you can't sensibly say. So, to be sensible, you've got to say he wasn't a good moral teacher or he was and he was divine. And you can kind of flow chart it here. Given, given that Jesus claimed divinity, and of course there's a whole lot of argument that you could go into behind that, but given that, either that claim was false or it was true. Well, if it was true, then, of course, he was Lord. If it was false, you could ask, well, did Jesus himself really believe that claim or not? Um, if he didn't believe it, then he was, self-consciously, he was lying. He was some sort of fraudster, huckster, a blasphemer within his culture. If he did believe it, sincerely, but he was wrong, then he's a lunatic, he's mad. Well, Dawkins says, well, this fourth possibility, he says this isn't the God delusion, almost obvious to need mentioning is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. So this is, argument is wrong because there's another option that Lewis hasn't put on there. Because the trouble is that that option is even less plausible <laughs> than the lunatic or liar options, I would say. Um, it is not easy, says Stephen T. Davis, to see how any sane, religious, first-century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. <laughs> it just doesn't really make sense. I love the way that uh, Nicky Gumbler wrote the Alpha Course here in, in England. Puts this 
says, the irony of the God delusion by Dawkins is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. All kristne har en vrangforestilling, fordi de tror at de er Gud. Men Jesus hadde ikke en vrangforestilling, selv om han trodde han var Gud. Gud. Anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would be considered insane, says Mike King. So why does Dawkins try and go for that really implausible fourth option? That's a kind of backhanded compliment to the strength of the, the trilemma argument. And if Dawkins himself recognizes, he says, there's no evidence Jesus himself was mad. That's why he doesn't plump for that option. So we've ruled that out. And indeed, he doesn't think that Jesus was some kind of deceiving liar. Dawkins himself says that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Exactly the position Lewis was arguing. You couldn't say he was just a great moral teacher. But that's what Dawkins thinks he was. He talks about the moral superiority of Jesus and so on. So, because Dawkins himself recognises that the lunatic and liar categories are really implausible, he, he grasps at the straw of this ludicrous fourth option that is even worse, worse than those. Um, which, of course leads you through to, in as much as you've got good evidence for this, to the extent that you think these are indeed implausible, to that extent you see this argument shows there is some weight of evidence in favour of the view that Jesus was Lord. Um, that's my business card for you, so you can uh, <laughs> look me up on Twitter or email or my website, which has free papers and access to my podcast channel, and so on, and hopefully if this thing has been doing its job, this will end up on my podcast channel. So if you didn't manage to make notes, you can listen to the whole thing again later, um, and you can get access to stuff about my books and things there. Uh, I have a few books with me here. Um, this one, unfortunately, is quite expensive. That would be £20 to you, um, but these and my philosophy textbook are for 10 quid. £10? Bargain. Just 10 quid. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks a lot. Please. And I think what you've done here, Pete, is you've both given us an overview of key arguments within C.S. Lewis's <laughs> at the same time contrasting it with leading atheist thought today. And I think that is very stimulating for us to go on uh, uh, thinking, reflecting on what does that mean then for us? Because we meet many people who don't want to go as far as Dawkins, which you said, 
but on the other hand, people are very much influenced. And there is unfortunately an increasing number of young people who buy into Dawkins a lot. And we should be aware of that as well. <laughs>